And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 139, recorded on October 14th, 2019. Today we will talk about Kahoot going public in Norway, about Einride and autonomous driving, about the new marathon running record, about the fresh reports, future events, and much more. We will also run, for a change, a conversation with Lucy Cheeseman, an algorithm musician and the founder of Sona, which is a group that supports women and girls in sound and music technology. Technology. I am your host, Andre Degeler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's life? Hi, Andre. It's going well here. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm also fine. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, really looking forward to a short uh, sort of uh, holiday that I'm taking later this week, and uh, I won't be around next week as well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm getting ready to do a lot of traveling for different events. So tomorrow I'm heading off to Sastock in Dublin, and then I'm there for the whole uh, part of the week and then back for one day and then back on the road again. When you go to conferences, do you always consider it work or do you have like pleasure conferences and uh, work conferences? I have sometimes a little bit of both. It kind of depends what I'm um, what I'm what's in store for me at the conference, but I don't get to go to too many conferences these days where I'm not doing something, some presenting or moderating right. or um, stage stuff. I do really, I miss being on in the audience and getting to take in all the great talks, but I don't get to do that too much these days. Yeah. I don't think we also get to go to nice locations too much. That is like warm and <laughs> sunny and beach and all that. Northern Europe is our choice, it seems. Yeah, well, you that's why you have a vacation coming up to the war. Yeah, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm going to Spain, exactly. So we're going to talk about events a little bit more. And uh, one more thing before we uh, move to the new stories and all. Uh, you remember uh, probably that I have recently told you that we are going to hear the name of Sylvie Goulard uh, much more often now in connection to the EU tech policy. Well, you can forget this name safely now, I suppose, because that is totally not happening. Uh, after two hearings, uh, the European Parliament has rejected Goulard's appointment uh, due to ethical concerns and uh, possibly as part of a larger politically charged play. So one way or the other, Vestager is here to stay as a competition commissioner, but it's anyone's guess who will end up in charge of the internal market portfolio. Yeah, so I think this development is really surprising. And it came from out of left field for a lot of people following the the um, nominations. But I think it's also very important, it sends an important message that checks and balances in the EU still exist and that they are working. So I don't think it's, it's, it's necessarily a, a negative thing there. No, yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think it's a good thing. But there were what I think three people who were uh, eventually rejected, uh, and uh, Goulart is one of them. Uh, so yeah, it's great that it's possible for sure. It's uh, if it were not possible, then it would be a bad thing for the European Union. Which it also means that the presidency that was supposed to start on November first will probably be pushed back as they bring on three new candidates and go through the 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 process once again. Okay, that's uh, that's also an, uh, an interesting thing. I didn't uh, didn't think about it, but yeah, it kind of makes sense. 
Now, let's move to the stories. And I wanted to talk about something uh, today that kind of flew under the radar uh, last week, at least outside of the Nordics. Uh, the company called Kahoot, uh, which is one of the more well-known Norwegian startups, started trading its shares publicly on the Oslo Stock Exchange. And as of today, the company's market cap has reached some 540 million euros. So in case you've missed it, uh, Kahoot is an uh, edutech uh, sort of company founded in in Norway back in 2013 and since then the company has raised about 60 million US dollars in funding and uh, the whole platform the whole thing is basically it's, it's like a quiz engine and an online platform uh, that can be used in schools or for any sort of like courses or by companies for onboarding activities and that kind of thing and the main benefit of Kahoot is that it's incredibly simple and it's incredibly simple for both players and those who set up uh, those uh, games and quizzes it also has a free tier that's more than enough for sort of casual users. And I think they also say that uh, their basic uh, tier is always going to be free for uh, teachers in classrooms. I have done Kahoot quizzes uh, number of times at my Dutch language courses or at work or elsewhere and the main idea is that you basically have a big screen in the room that everyone can see and on that screen the questions are shown and then every participant uh, uh, can use their own smartphone to choose uh, the answer and uh, rinse and repeat so back to the public listing, though. Uh, technically, it's not the first time even that Kahoot lists its shares, which I didn't know about. Uh, but turns out that up until now, they were traded over the counter. And what it means is that the shares were traded by uh, broker dealers who sort of communicated uh, between themselves. And uh, that would be the difference as opposed to the centralized uh, stock exchange that will be trading uh, the uh, shares right now. Also uh, interesting that Kahoot began uh, began trading uh, about a year ago, uh, and the company was valued at about seventy nine million euros. But right now, its valuation has grown. What is it? Uh, almost seven, almost seven x uh, to the valuation, which is a pretty good result for a bit more than a year. Uh, what's also interesting is that two of the co-founders of Kahoot, uh, Jamie Brooker and uh, Johan Brand, uh, decided to sell their shares during that period, and uh, they made about uh, twenty million euros in total, according to a story in uh, Shifter. Uh, so, in an interview, they also said that they didn't want to own a big stake in a company where they were not uh, really involved in day-to-day -day operations. Because in 2017, both of them uh, sort of stepped down from the operational roles and uh, stayed as strategic advisors. Uh, I have also checked uh, the latest company presentation for investors. And uh, it uh, says, for example, that Kahoot gets almost half of its revenue from North America, that uh, uh, particularly the US and Canada. Uh, then there comes Europe, that accounts for about a third of the revenues, and then uh, comes the rest of the world. The invoiced revenues of the company grew to 2.3 million US dollars in the second quarter of this year, and that's a pretty good growth. That's 15% uh, quarter on quarter and 300% year on year growth. So the company is seeing a pretty good growth trajectory. It is, however, not profitable. Uh, in 2018, Kahoot showed a negative EBITDA of uh, almost 10 million US dollars. But as far as I understand, this year they are going to show much higher revenues, but uh, not uh, but their uh, expenses uh, grow uh, slower than uh, their revenues, uh, which kind of uh, 
makes us expect uh, a better report at the end of this year. After the listing uh, on the Oslo Stock Exchange last week, uh, the share price has increased a little bit, but uh, it didn't do a crazy pop or anything. Uh, the listing started at 42 Norwegian kroner per share, and the current price, as of uh, us recording this uh, in the evening of 14th of October, was a 45 kroner, so a bit less than 10% uh, growth. And the listing itself is probably a good sign, I would say, for the ecosystem in Norway. And I do hope that we are going to see more, let's say, middle-sized companies uh, go in public because I generally think it's a good idea to have this kind of healthy mix of bigger private rounds, uh, but also IPOs uh, for companies that are valued around uh, this amount of money, like half a billion euros or so. What do you think, Natalie? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of domestic exchanges for startups to be listing themselves on um, across Europe that would really renew the ecosystem and potentially putting keeping more more money domestically um, is, is a really good sign. And I know there's a number of critics around Europe that really would like to see that happening more often than it is um, and to see if some of these companies come out of private hands um, and, and onto the public markets. Yeah, absolutely. So you were going to talk about uh, private rounds, though, today, right? Yeah, just just a little bit. So my story this week is about Einride, which is a Swedish autonomous trucking company that's just raised a new Series A round of 25 million euros to further their autonomous driving technology. And I think it's important to talk about this deal because Einride is one of the most exciting players when it comes to autonomous driving technology, not just in Europe, but worldwide. So the development of autonomous driving technology from personal transport to trucking to shipping, it's really an exciting space to follow, but it's one that's also changing very quickly and also characterized by a number of misconceptions. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it today. Earlier this year, I was at a mobility event, and I'm not going to say which one, but I will say that it did have a really large corporate representation. And I remarked on this to one of the organizers, and their response was, well, we really believe that it's corporates that are going to be at the forefront of innovation when it comes to autonomous driving. And I was pretty frustrated because it's some of the work that's being done by startups and not corporates that really stands out when it comes to breaking the fifth level of autonomous driving. That is a car that is truly self-driving, completely hands-off. And while we haven't yet reached that barrier and there's still a lot of work to do, there are a ton of startups that are really making an impact that are worth knowing. Uh, you only need to look to Tesla in the U.S. and their autopilot feature this, of course, is something that none of the major manufacturers have developed before or marketed since. So I think it's fair to count. We shouldn't be counting startups out when it comes to autonomous driving. And especially when we're looking at a lot of these big um, auto manufacturers in Europe, which are, to be fair, supporting a lot of startups on this journey, what you're also seeing in the autonomous autonomous space is that they're spinning out these divisions into their own startups. One of the most notable examples is that Volkswagen, their Audi division, and they've built something called AID, which stands for Autonomous Intelligent Driving. And it's a fully independent startup that is entirely focused on building level four autonomous driving stack. But beyond this, there's a lot of great innovation happening by startups elsewhere in Europe. So I wanted to talk about a few of these and catch you all up on some of the things that have been happening in this space. So 
First, we have Einride, which is one of the real standouts when it comes to the future of mobility technology. The company is based in Stockholm, and they've been developing a transportation technology called the Einride Pod, which is an electric truck that is remotely controlled by drivers. The company was founded in 2016, and the first prototype of the Einride Pod was released in 2017. The look of the vehicles is quite distinctive. They don't have a driver's cab. And to me, the shape of it kind of brings to mind the sand crawler from Star Wars, but it's all white and some black accents. In the fall of last year, the Einride pod came into commercial use at a Swedish warehouse. And earlier this month, they signed an innovation agreement with the port of Helsingborg, which is a container shipping port in the south of Sweden. So definitely one of those companies that you should keep your eye on beyond this funding round. The next startup that should be on your radar is called Wave, and that's WA. Y-V-E. And this is a spin out from the University of Cambridge, and they're based in London in the UK. Earlier this year, they claimed a world first, um, their, their words, not mine, um, with a car driving on roads it's never seen before during training without using an HD map of its environment. So this is in contrast to other systems that rely on maps and rules to drive. So Wave drives using its AI and satellite navigation. And this is a pretty interesting company that I was first introduced to at Web Summit last year. And it's also catching the eye of investors. In August, the company raised a $20 million round from a number of U.S. and European investors, becoming the best-funded self-driving company in the U.K. And there are a number of competitors in this space as well. The final company I wanted to talk about today comes from Budapest, Hungary, and the startup is called AI Motive. And last December, they received 20 million euro venture debt loan from the European Investment Bank to put towards research and development of its innovative artificial intelligence-based systems for self-driving cars. AI Motive is not nearly as well known because it's not a self-driving company itself. What they do is develop the artificial intelligence software that's built into many of today's self-driving technologies. AI Motive creates training data sets and a neural network IP that other companies can use to implement their self-driving cars. So to think about AI Motive as building the data infrastructure that's then used for self-driving. Anyone that knows AI knows that these things are vitally important. So I think it's key to recognize those that are building things behind the scenes. And it's also generating a lot of attention. Um, And it's a great um, success story from Central Europe. And of course, there's a lot more interesting things happening in this space. And it's an incredible, exciting space to follow. So do keep your eye on, on what's happening there. And What I love about the mobility sector is that these technologies have the potential of making such a big impact. And so it's very exciting to see innovations coming from all around Europe. Really, everywhere you look, there's something something promising coming out of the self-driving space. Nice. I have to say, I haven't really heard that much about Einride before uh, this particular round. So it's uh, interesting to brush up on this. Yeah, definitely keep it on your radar because when we think about the future of self-driving, of course, cars are something that everyone's talking about, but ultimately a lot of transport is taken over by trucks um, and by moving goods around. And it's also a space where there's tons of a, a business case to be made. So definitely keep it on on things to watch out for.
Right. Okay, so now I have something different, something we don't normally do that much of on this podcast. Natalie, before we started recording, I sent you an audio track to listen to, and now I'm going to play it uh, for everybody else, just maybe a few seconds of it to get you an idea. And Natalie, tell me what you think about this music. So I guess, okay, so here is where my my real American comes out, where I don't listen to music like this very often. You'd say, I'd say I never listen to music like this. I only usually listen to country music. and But I have to say it is something quite distinctive about this track. And I think if you're into it, that that's cool. And maybe that... I, I'm not really sure um, what the where where you'd be listening to it, but if you like it, then great. <laughs> right. Okay. For me, this is also a case when I'm much more excited about the way the music is produced, even more than the music itself. But I actually. I kind of like it. I could listen to this in my sort of like daily life as a, as a background, for example. I really like good background music. This could be it. So what this is, it is a sort of a, it is a recorded and uh, arranged algorithm music. And what it means is that this music has been produced uh, only by coding. So you, what happens on an algorithm is that uh, one person, like the musician themselves, they just come to the event and they start coding real time and they create this music like in a very in very different uh, ways and uh, shapes uh, using different instruments using different uh, programming languages and it's really fascinating thing i really like it and uh, this is why i interviewed this uh, particular person who produced uh, the track that we just listened to her name is lucy cheeseman uh, she's from the uk uh, she is an algorithm musician and the founder of uh, an organization called sona which is a group uh, that supports uh, women and girls in the music technology and uh, sound industry. So let's listen to the interview. Let's learn a bit more about uh, Algorave and uh, coding in music. And we will be back in a few minutes with the rest of this episode. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degelow reporting today from uh, Copenhagen, the Digital Frontrunners Festival. And uh, I am catching up uh, with uh, Lucy Cheeseman, uh, the Algorithm musician <laughs> who works at the university. Hey, uh, Lucy, great uh, uh, to talk to you and thanks a lot for taking the time. Thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you. So I've just seen your performance on stage. I think it was great. I think it was fascinating. And uh, now I have a lot of questions. Okay. So first of all, what is your day job? Is it the university or is it uh, the music? Yeah, my day job's at the university. What is, your, what is it you're doing there? I'm a business analyst. So I'm working currently on a project. It's very dry, actually. You shouldn't have asked me this. Um, to implement a data warehouse at the university and sort of create some reporting and stuff from that right um so i do that part-time and then part-time i'm a musician but it's a good balance for me at the moment i think um one if you're making experimental music it's quite hard to make a living from that um and that's fine not everybody has to like what you do or want to pay for it but also i think that it's nice for me to have the creative freedom to not be worrying about making music that needs to be commercially viable right and so i can just you know make whatever weird sounds I want to and I don't have to worry too much about people liking it. So do you have any uh, formal music education? 
No. So I did uh, play drums when I was younger and um, I played for a long time. I started playing when I was a kid, but I never learned music theory. Um, I never learned to read music. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm not classically trained in any way. You did learn to pro- how to program though. Uh, my background's not in computer science either, so <laughs> I've kind of come at this from like a very much a lay person's perspective. Um, so I had done like a teeny bit of coding before I started using tidal cycles, um, just like some visual basic, like flexible right. stuff. Um, but I, I think like the way I think about music, like coming from a background of being a drummer is very much about patterns and fitting patterns together. So when I, came into contact with tidal cycles it all felt quite logical to me even though I don't have that computer science background and really the syntax is quite simple and I use such a small amount of functions that and it's quite you know abstracted anyway um that I I never found it too troubling interesting so we can call it a (laughs) passion-driven approach yeah sure yeah cool so does it actually make any difference that uh, uh, Tidal cycles that you're using is a functional language uh, as opposed to imperative languages? I think the thing is for me, because I came with no computer science background, that didn't even mean anything to me when I started. Right. Like now I understand that. And um, like if I actually, like when I started using Tidal, I was just using it kind of instinctively. So I would just type in a function, run it and see what it sounded like. And I learned that way in quite a kind of organic way. And if I tried to like extrapolate back and understand exactly what was happening, I found that really challenging. Like now I'm more familiar with it and I'm more familiar with how Haskell works. Um, I find it a lot easier. So I read a great book, which is Learn You a Haskell for Great Good. It's available for free online or you can donate some money to the author whose name I've forgotten. Sorry. Um, and that really helped me understand how functional programming language works, which in turn really enhanced my understanding of, of Tidal and, and enhanced my performances. But I also use, um, for example, Foxdot, which is a different live coding language, which is built in Python and, um, you know, is much more kind of object based and works in a very different way. And, and I think there are strengths to, to both of those, you know, when you're making music and they definitely involve a very different approach. Right. And uh, when did you start doing all this? Um, I think it was like three or four years ago, either late 2015, early 2016, something. And how did you, how did you discover it even? So I was, I wanted to start making electronic music. I hadn't made any music for a few years and I was quite frustrated by playing drums, um, because they're like very big and loud and heavy and difficult to practice and you need other musicians. And it was just, it's, I couldn't really be self-sufficient um playing drums so I wanted to make electronic music and I tried out some more traditional techniques like using Ableton for example and I felt quite frustrated by them because they all want you to work in a particular way um and because I don't have that necessarily like western classical background I found that a little bit limiting um so I, and then I found out about live coding. I went to a workshop run by Joanne Armitage and Shelley Knotts, who were two really prominent live coders in the UK. And they were teaching SuperGlider, which is this like amazing platform for creating music. And you can really, it's so flexible. You can really do anything with it, but the learning curve is quite steep. Um, and I don't have that side of tech, techie background. So I found it really challenging. And I, I went away and I was so excited by the possibilities of it, but ultimately frustrated by my own lack of skill and I was learning but it was taking me a long time and a few months after that I saw Alex McLean who's the creator of Tidal Cycles doing a demonstration at like some functional programming meetup I didn't even know what that was at the time (laughs) and I went I went along and saw him demonstrating Tidal 
Um, and instantly I fell in love with it. Like it, it was exactly the kind of way of interacting with music that I, that I wanted. And I went away and I installed the software, which took me like three days. It was really like technical, like all these different things to do. And it was like installing like Linux emulators. It's a bit more straightforward now. Um, and I, and I just started just playing about with stuff like taking stuff from the documentation trying it out and I, I bumped into Alex a few weeks after that gig and introduced myself and said oh you know I'm using your software it's fantastic like I'm so excited by it and he just said oh great I'll book you for an algorithm then and I didn't even know what an algorithm was at that point um so he just booked me to play the show like very generous of him wow. and that was like the middle of 2016 so like three years ago and I've just been doing it ever since so what's what's this space like uh, the algorithm space. Ah. How how big is it? How many musicians are there? How many people are coming to these events? It varies. So people are always asking like what an algorithm is, and it isn't really anything like particular. There's I guess there's no like one thing that makes it an algorithm. I think the idea being that people come and it's a party. So right. there's a laid back atmosphere. Like maybe it's in a nightclub, but sometimes it's in an art gallery, or sometimes it's at a festival um you know typically you'll have people you have people live coding and you will have people making music and visuals um you would expect to see like some code projected on a screen and also some like psychedelic visuals being projected maybe some people hunched over laptops not being able to give a very exciting movement performance but you can see what they're typing on the screen you can see their code um you would expect i don't know i guess like it's typically dance music but i think like as live coding and algorithm grows in popularity, you get a lot more variety in the music that's played there. Um, it's pretty experimental. Uh, a lot of people are using open source software, maybe software they've built themselves. And sometimes things don't always go as planned, but that's kind of part of the fun. So if stuff goes wrong, like I always enjoy it if I have a crash at a gig or like something really weird happens like sound wise. Did that happen to you? It's happened to me lo lots of times. Yeah. I was kind of hoping it would happen today because even, but maybe not because I had such a short set, but it's, I feel like it's a very like authentic live coding experience to have your computer crash in the middle of a set or some crazy sounds to come out that you couldn't have predicted were going to happen. Um, and I think like the algorithm enables you to embrace that because there's an expectation that what you're doing is a little bit hacky and it's a little bit experimental and it's not like oh I'm going to go and play in a club and everyone expects this like perfect techno DJ performance you know I think it's okay to do something that's a bit more weird or experimental or broken sounding at an algorithm. So how long would be an, your uh, average set? Typically, I will play for like 30 minutes. That's like really ideal for me. I think if you go on too much longer, because it's all improvised, you can start running out of ideas. I start to maybe get a little bit bored or frustrated. So I feel like that passes on to the audience if you're not careful. Like I will play longer sets, um, like up to an hour or even more. But uh, yeah, typically for me, 30 minutes is, is good because um, it can just, it can get a bit tough after that. Right. So it is experimental it is improvisation it is live but at the same time you do have some stuff prepared like some uh, some lines of code that, that are already there that's what i saw on the on the screen so like how so how much of it is improvisation and how much you have to prepare home just to like how much do you understand what you what you're gonna play uh, that night it really varies so today i was quite pre-prepared because i only had a short set so i felt like i didn't have a lot of time to explore ideas on the stage which is something i like to do 
Um, there's a lot of like debate about whether you should start with a blank screen or how much you should pre-prepare. There's people writing scholarly articles about this probably as we speak. Um, but for me, like typically what I prepare is I will prepare my sounds in advance. So I prepare my samples and I have like groups of sounds that I want to use together, or I'll maybe have some like the synth that I was using today doesn't have any presets, for example, but I have some idea of the kind of sound I want to come out of the synth. Um, and I might have like an idea for a structure as well. If I have like certain samples, I want to work sections around and I might even have like certain ways I want to manipulate those samples live. Um, and then I will practice just to make sure everything like works harmoniously together. But then typically when I go on stage, like that's, that's all I've done in advance and I don't know exactly what's going to come out. I might go in a completely different direction, depending a little bit on the audience or the other acts that have played that night. Um, so it, it varies quite a lot. Sometimes if it's like a really high profile show, I'll have a bit more prepared or if I'm doing a longer set because it helps me kind of get through without running out of ideas or kind of burning out, if that makes sense. Um, and other people, you know, there's not one right way to do it. So other people will come with a whole set pre-prepared. Maybe they have nothing typed already, but they have it memorized in their head or maybe they have a load of stuff typed and they are doing more like a DJ, like moving between different parts or like changing values or they might have some basic, you know, you might have a starting point. And then you improvise from there. So you have like a few lines of code that you start with and then you start manipulating those and changing the sound. Um, it really varies a lot. Um, and I would say like when I do solo stuff, it's probably slightly more pre-prepared. I also play in a band called Type um, with three guys, Weez, Fox Dot. And that's a lot more improv because there's four of us. So wow. we just go for it. Like, And you never know what the other person's going to do. So you might have an idea about how you want something to go. Is it like four people with laptops live yeah. coding? Yeah, we have. Yeah. So we use Fox Dot's the language that we use. And we use um, a piece of software called Troop that was developed by my bandmate, Ryan Kirkbride. He also built Fox Dot as well, actually, um, where you're all editing the same text buffer. So it's like say Google Docs where you can be in there like editing a, a document together. It's like that, but you're all editing each other's code. Everybody has like a different color so you can see who's doing what, um, which gets quite chaotic. And I think it's really fun because you don't, because there's four of you, you don't have to have the same number of ideas. You can have 25% of the ideas you have to have when you're playing solo, right? So you, you can take your time a little bit more and listen. So it gives you a bit more freedom for experimentation. And also because you have the unknown element of what the other guys are going to do, that also kind of encourages you to be a lot uh, less pre-prepared in your thinking. And so someone might do something, but that sounds great. That's making me want to do this other thing. Or you might hear someone do something. You're like, no, that's completely opposite. I wanted to do like now we're going in a different direction. Or you might go and change it, you know, go back to see what they did and, and, and edit their code as well. So. Right. And how often do you normally uh, play? Oh, I mean, it varies again, varies a lot. Like I, last year, I think I played like 30 shows, which is a lot. Like this year, I haven't done so many because I've been working a bit more on studio projects and other stuff too. Um, but yeah, I, I two or three times a month, mm -hmm. something like That's that. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, the studio work and you mentioned that there is an album coming up. Yes, there is. Yeah. So how, how, how does that work? So like, I, I do understand like the live sessions, but then is the album consisting of a number of live sessions or is it more thought through how does it work so the way i recorded the album this time i worked with uh, an engineer called adam zamer who runs a studio in sheffield called tie-dye tapes and he we recorded like two long sessions so i had five hours of improvised music which we then edited down into seven tracks so we picked out the best parts of each kind of section um and 
kind of tried to edit it into something that was a bit more coherent than like mm. a full improv set. Then I recorded some vocals over the top as well. Um, so it feels a lot more composed, but the original music that I recorded, the original sessions were improvised. Um, but it is, it's always a bit of a trade-off between how experimental you want something to sound or like how pop you want something to sound and how much I want to like honestly reflect a live performance, which is really like the core of what I do and how much I want something that's very listenable and and that has like, you know, distinct tracks. Because normally when I play live, I'll just play continuous music for the length of my set. Um, and then there's some quite difficult decisions to be made there. Do you think most of the people who come to these uh, events, to these algo raves, do you think they are also making this music or at least understand what's going on on the screen? I think it used to be, but I think it's changed quite a lot. So again, like in Sheffield, because we have Alex McLean living there and he really like is the originator of Algorave, um, there's kind of a bubble of activity. So you play a show and people will come and yeah, they're doing live coding and they're interested in it, but also people will come because they like experimental music or they just want to dance or they just heard about it. They read about it in some local press and they want to see what it's about. Um, But then other times you'll go to play a show and it feels very much like a novelty or like sometimes I get invited to play like a punk show. It's not an algorithm at all. No one there has any clue what I'm doing, but, you know, they enjoy it because it's something different. Um, So, again, it just I don't know. It's hard to give a concrete answer. I think you have to have an interest in like in either like techie stuff or experimental music. I, I don't think there's many people who come like completely from outside those two spheres. Some people who are just really into dance music right. and like partying and going crazy also will come. Um, but generally people are like one end or the other. They're like techie people or they're weird music people. Right. And uh, do you know what the space is like outside of the UK? Um, it depends where it is. So Algorithm is in a lot of places. Uh, I think it's in like 50 countries or something. I say that number off the top of my head. If you go on the website, it can tell you. Um, so there's little pockets of activity. So there's a lot of activity in New York and America and in Pittsburgh as well. Um, there's a lot of activity in India. There's some in Japan. Um, there's little pockets around Europe and Germany and places as well. In the Netherlands, there's a really um, interesting live coding scene there. Uh, I think... Denmark is a little bit behind, unfortunately. So there's been one algorithm in Denmark at the end of last year. I played it in Udense. I can't pronounce it correctly, I think. Me neither. Yeah. But, I know, but I know what you mean. Um, and then obviously I'm playing here in Copenhagen. But there's also there's people doing live coding in Denmark. But I would say like algorithm officially is not not really here so much. Um, but it could be. Anyone can, anyone can start it up. So... Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk. And I am very much looking forward to listening to your album. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Hello. Welcome back to the podcast of TechU. I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview with uh, Lucy. And I hope you will go and check out her album that's uh, out now. It's called Thanks for Watching. So I will leave a link in the show notes so go ahead and check it out now natalie did you want to talk about events finally yeah so we haven't been doing uh the regular event section on the podcast because it was making things a bit too long but we are in the thick of the event season right now so um andre is there any place we can see you coming in the next couple of weeks Right. So first place is going to be Spain, but I'm coming there for holidays. So I don't think a lot of people are going to see me. I'm going to spend most of my time in the mountains. But then I will indeed be going hopefully to Web Summit first. And then I'm really looking forward to uh, Slush in November. Great. So 
as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I will be heading to Sastock this week. But then at the end of the week, I'm going to the Cairo Summit in Italy. Um, really interested to see what's going on um, with the Cairo Society there. Um, then I'm heading to Dublin for Startup Week Dublin. And that's kind of the, the one event of the, the year that I am part of the organizing um, on the organizing side. And it is both a, a work and a play um, activity for me because it's something that I've really put um, a lot of myself into to being a part of. So you might be if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see a lot of Dublin related updates. But then um, coming after Brexit, hopefully if Brexit isn't too much of a, um, a challenge for travel, I'll be heading to Berlin in November for the Marketplace Conference that's taking place on the 19th of November. So if anyone is heading there, do let me know um, and be sure to say hi. It sounds really interesting. Now it is time for our recommendations, and mine is going to be really short. I uh, have left a lot of room for you, Natalie. So uh, I think we all probably have heard by now about this new marathon running record uh, of under two hours, uh, which was set by Eliud Kipchoge uh, last week. And I really wanted to recommend a short story in The Guardian about the technology uh, behind this achievement. And it looks like building running shoes is about as technology-intense these days as uh, anything computer related and also a fun fact by the way i have it in my notes five of the most recent marathon running records were set by people wearing the same model of shoes it cannot be a coincidence so here comes here comes the technology behind it check out the piece if you're interested i will leave the link in the show notes now natalie i know you walk a lot but do you actually do any running well, I used to be a runner, Andre, and I used to do lots of distance running um, when I was a younger person. But um, due to injuries, I actually have a really hard time running these days, which is which is a very um, bittersweet um, for me. But I did lots of these long distance running back my former times, you could say. Right. So since I do most of my running in uh, wearing my cleats, I don't really know a lot about running shoes. But uh, is it actually as technologically advanced uh, as uh, the piece portrays it? It definitely is. And there is a lot of science behind the shoes that you wear and also the materials that are used. And running shoes don't last very long. Um, for some of the most elite runners, you really don't get a lot of wears out of them. Um, so that that's another another concern, um, especially when you're doing these longer these longer journeys. Wow, that's totally like a parallel world for me. I, I, world for me, I don't really know that much about uh, actual running. It sounds like a lot of fun until you get injured. Right. Anyway, what was your recommendation? Yeah. So. My recommendation this week are two different reports on a similar theme and a new initiative that you can find under under the hashtag FundRight. The first is a report by Early Stage Investor Capital T and by TechLeap, the organization that was formerly called Startup Delta in the Netherlands. TechLeap is officially relaunching in the next few days. So right as this podcast goes live, and you should check that out. And what it's done, it looks to be quite a transition for the organization. So very much a metamorphosis of sorts in what they're doing and how they're working with founders in the Netherlands. We'll know more details soon, but first they put together a report that looks at the gender diversity of startups in the Netherlands. 
I've shared on this podcast before how we need to be a bit skeptical of all these reports that are coming out all the time, and especially at the end of the year. But this one stands out largely because of the data coverage that Startup Delta has of all the startups in the country and their job of highlighting their methodology and some of the limitations there. It's an example of a really good report. So if you care about data and how it's used, check that out. But beyond that, it's chock full of information about some of the investment outcomes of Dutch companies and the investment landscape there. Unsurprisingly, they find that female-founded companies receive less funding in the Netherlands as compared to teams that are all male-founded. And this coincides with some of the research that's been done on different countries, notably in the UK and in the US. But from this research, it's led to a new initiative, which is spearheaded by TechLeap and a consortium of Dutch VCs. And this is called FundRight. After finding that only about 2% of all Dutch VC is invested in female-founded or female-co-founded companies, just 2%, they wanted to do something to change that. So they've committed themselves to making these changes necessary and working to build a more optimal startup ecosystem in the Netherlands. So they have three goals, and I'll paraphrase here. And the first is within three years of this statement, All participating VC companies and the management teams of their current portfolio companies will have a diverse mix of up to 35% women on staff. Next, they want a considerable percentage of the companies that are co-invested in are co-founded by women. Then they're going to publish an annual report of key statistics in relation to the gender diversity of Dutch VC and their portfolio companies, kind of along the idea that what gets measured gets acted upon. And then they hope to actively propagate our statement and share our learnings and approaches with the end goal of signing up all 100% of all Dutch VCs by 2022. So for this iteration, 30 VCs have signed on. But what they've put together is a really lovely report of 200 gender diverse startups that are breaking the mold in the Netherlands. And there's lots of interesting companies in there to check out. So I think this is very impressive leadership and some really awesome work, not only to promote this new initiative and to spark the conversation, but also to elevate some really great companies. So I'd encourage you to have a look at that. This looks great. Uh, I'm very proud of the country I'm living in. I have not checked the reports uh, yet, though, but it's great that uh, this work uh, is uh, being done these days. Now, it is time for us to wrap it up. Uh, This is it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to always email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thanks a lot for joining today. Enjoy your travels. Yeah, thank you, Andre. It's great being here. And I'm sorry that we won't be here next week, but we will have a special podcast um, in store for you. So don't miss that one. Absolutely. Keep your eyes and ears peeled. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.